Take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Acts chapter 5. We're in Acts chapter 5, and uh, as you're turning there, just a a reminder of that uh, one announcement um, in your bulletin that that Paul had mentioned, in case you missed it. We do have an important members meeting next week. We had a few things that we're going to be voting on, so it's really important if you're a member that you be here. And we did send out an email uh, in the past week uh, with the exact wording of the things that we will be voting on, so refer to that. Or if you have any questions uh, about that, or if you didn't get the email, just let me know or let Pastor Jared know, and we'll help you out with that. Acts chapter 5. We're continuing our sermon series entitled, He Lives, Aftershocks of the Empty Tomb. Because Jesus is not dead, everything has changed. And what we've been learning in the book of Acts is that the purpose of Jesus coming into the world is not simply to start uh, some, some new movement or new religion. Jesus has come to take over. Jesus has come to establish a world empire over which he will rule and reign. But unlike the invasions of wicked human empires, Jesus' invasion is a wonderful thing. It's a liberating thing. Jesus came into a world that was broken because of our sin and our rebellion. Because the very first man, Adam, long ago thought that he could rule the world better than God. But in turning away from the God of life, he unleashed a reign of death. And so we have a world that is twisted and corrupted. A world dominated by pain and war and disease and suffering. And at the end of it all is the grave. Indeed, sin has not only twisted and corrupted the physical world, but it has twisted and corrupted mankind internally. We all have followed in Adam's footsteps, seeking to throw off God's lordship so that we might be lord, so that we might be king. We've all become little tyrants, inwardly focused, selfish, hating God and hating one another. Welcome to a kingdom ruled by man. But Jesus... The Creator became a man to come and reverse everything that has gone wrong with His creation, to fix what was broken, to restore that which has fallen. He revealed Himself as the King, the long-awaited Messiah come to save His people, but His people would not have Him. His enemies nailed him to a cross, and they thought that that was the end of him, but then three days later, his disciples visit the tomb, and they find it empty. And the book of Acts picks up the story in the immediate aftermath of the resurrection with Jesus speaking to his disciples about the kingdom of God. Jesus tells them, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. It's the beginnings of a global takeover which is not going to happen through military might, but through the spread of the gospel, the good news that Jesus' death was not an accident. It was ordained from the very beginning, and it is the means by which he has paid the price for sins so that if any sinner would turn from their sins and place their faith in Jesus, they could be forgiven of their treason against God and brought back into God's kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom that crosses geographic and ethnic and cultural borders and boundaries where the hearts of men and women everywhere are being conquered and transformed by the gospel, liberated from sin's slavery to be new people, loving God and loving one another. It's a spiritual kingdom. But there is the promise that one day that kingdom would also fully invade and restore the physical world that has been corrupted by sin. And so in Acts chapter 3, the apostle Peter, who through the power of Jesus' name, gives complete physical healing and restoration to a man that had been physically paralyzed for decades. This former beggar is now jumping up and down, and he is shouting with joy in the temple. What is this? It's a sign. It's a signal that Jesus is turning back the old world order. He is reversing the curse that came through sin. He's making all things new. It's a preview of a world to come where all who believe in the gospel will be fully perfected spirit and body, never to fall down again, never to die again, never to sin again. And the fully resurrected and restored body of Jesus Christ is the crowning proof of this coming reality. 
And as the book of Acts continues, we have seen thousands of people now place their hope in Jesus, experiencing deliverance from the domain of darkness and placed in the kingdom of Christ. But it's not all good times. We've seen that Satan, the, the great enemy of God and man, he, he hates people being delivered from his clutches, and so he has gone on the offensive. In chapter 4, he stirs up outside opposition against the church from the religious authorities who put pressure on the disciples to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. But they don't stop preaching. They keep on preaching. And then in the first half of chapter 5, we saw the church facing attacks from within, The devil fills the heart of a man named Ananias to try to weaken the church through his hypocrisy. But God exposes him and his wife, and in the very first act of church discipline, God strikes them down, which then causes a lot of people to be fearful of the church. Those people serve a God who takes sin seriously. I'm not joining them. But amazingly, this event becomes also a catalyst for many more joining the church. This is a God who takes sin seriously. I will run to him for mercy. And so Satan's scheme to weaken the church backfires, but the enemies of God won't give up. They try harder than ever to stop the advance of the church, the advance of the gospel of the kingdom. What do they do? And how effective are they? And what does all of this have to do with us today, this Easter morning? Well, that's what's on the agenda for us right now. So let's take a look together. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the precious and perfect words of our God. Acts chapter 5, starting verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy... They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. And when the officers came... They did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them. But not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you to not teach in his name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter, but Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. All who followed him dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Every day... 
in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, speak to us this morning through your spirit, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You know, you've got to know what you're signing up for when you become a Christian. Not everyone gets that. Not everyone understands that. Part of becoming a Christian means taking sides in an ancient war between good and evil. Being a Christian means being light in a dark world that is at war against the Christ that you serve. And that means being a Christian puts a target on your back and invites conflict. We see it here in Acts 5. There's conflict. There's there's tension between two opposing sides that manifests itself in three particular ways. And the tensions that we see here aren't unique to the experience of these Christians in Acts 5. They are tensions that we all should expect. And the first tension that we see is man's opposition countered by divine protection. Man's opposition countered by divine protection. Verse 17 says, The high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Now, the Sadducees were one of the main groups in first century Judaism, not to be confused with the Pharisees. Probably more of you are familiar with the Pharisees than the Sadducees. The Pharisees, or the Sadducee, uh, that name Sadducee is related to uh, a Hebrew word uh, for righteousness. They were supposed to lead Israel in righteousness. They were a smaller, wealthier group than the Pharisees, and they wielded enormous power. Uh, The high priests would come from the Sadducees, and they were responsible for everything associated with the temple. Unlike the Pharisees, the Sadducees did not put much stake in the supernatural. They denied uh, future resurrection. They denied angels and demons, and, and they believed in just the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses. Uh, It sounds like a pretty boring religion, actually. They weren't atheists, but on a practical day-to-day level, they weren't much better. The Sadducees were more driven by political power and security than than religion and theology. They they had struck a deal with the Romans uh, where they were allowed to have a measure of power and authority over Israel as long as they could keep peace and stability. But as the message of Jesus is going forth and the gospel is being embraced by more and more Jews, this is increasingly troubling to the Sadducees. And why? Why are they troubled? Well, if you look back at chapter 4, verse 2, it says that they were greatly annoyed (laughs) that the apostles were teaching about the resurrection. That that makes sense. That undermines and threatens Sadducee teaching. But here in chapter 5, verse 17, it does not say that they were annoyed. What does it say motivates the Sadducees now? They were filled with jealousy. Aha! Now we're getting down to the heart of the issue, aren't we? Yes, the apostles are giving theological teaching that is contrary to the Sadducees. But that's not the main issue that is driving this group. It's not, it's not that they, they want to somehow maintain or defend God's honor. Instead, they are filled with jealousy. It, it, it's not about God at all. It's about them. They were envious of the growing popularity of the apostles. They sensed that they're losing their influence and their prestige. They're losing the honor that they held among the people, which would surely threaten their own position of power. Proverbs 6.34 says that jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. And how true that is. And so, fueled by jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in a public prison. Now, What we're reading about here is really nothing unusual. You and I need to understand that this is normal Christianity. Opposition to the gospel and the persecution of believers is an inevitable reality. Jesus promised it. He said in John 15, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In other words, As long as you conform, as long as you march to the drumbeat of this world, as long as you keep your head down low and you stay under the radar and you don't live too seriously as a Christian and you just go along with the prevailing culture around you, you'll fit in. You'll be safe. 
You'll even be applauded by the world. And that's what the Sadducees wanted, right? They wanted accolades, they wanted acceptance, they wanted approval and prestige. That was their own safe, comfortable little kingdom that they had built for themselves. But if you come with a message declaring the supremacy and the lordship of Christ to a world full of people who want to be their own lord, well, them's fighting words, y'all. Those are fighting words to rebellious sinners who are desperately seeking to overthrow God's kingship. So persecution will come. Count on it. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you're really living the the Christian life, there, there will be persecution in some form or another. The more you live for him, the more you stand out, the more, the, the more you do that, the more you're going to be an irritant to the world. The more the world's going to be reminded of Jesus' claims on their lives, and so the more you'll be hated. There's a saying that says, don't shoot the messenger. Well, when it comes to Christianity, the messengers get shot at a lot, sometimes literally. Now, of course, persecution looks different in different parts of the world, but even here in the relative safety of America, there is increasing, increasing pressure on Christians to conform. The more you live out your faith, the more you speak of Jesus, the more resistance you'll get as the world fights back. Notice how the Sadducees fight back. They don't fight back with, with reasoned, rational arguments. Uh, they're responding out of emotion here. They, they, they don't respond by, by debating the validity of the resurrection, which is ironic, because theologically they deny the resurrection and they have a golden opportunity to shut down Christianity once and for all. All you have to do is walk down the road, go to that tomb, and produce the body. You want to talk about killing Christianity once and for all? silencing the apostles for good, that would do it. That, that would have been the easiest way to put an end to all of this, but they don't do it because they can't because the tomb is empty, Amen. which demonstrates something very, very important. The issue with unbelief is not primarily an intellectual issue. I'm not saying that people don't have intellectual arguments against Christianity. What I'm saying is, is that that's not the primary issue. You need to know that. Ultimately, it is not an apologetical issue. And and I'm not against apologetics. Apologetics are, are rational, intellectual arguments for the defense of the faith. That's all well and good. That is important. It has its place. But you need to know that that's not the main issue. Otherwise, you could argue somebody into the kingdom by overwhelming them with your nerdy apologetics in a debate. I've seen Christians totally shred atheists in public debates, and I have never seen that atheist walk off the stage suddenly believing in the gospel, believing in the resurrection, because the issue is not ultimately intellectual. You know, the Sadducees never denied that Jesus didn't rise from the dead because they knew that they would never win that debate. They had no explanation for the empty tomb. In fact, if you read Matthew 28, very interesting, you'll see the religious authorities, they bribed the guards of the tomb to lie and circulate a story, a ridiculous story, about the disciples stealing the body even though privately they knew that wasn't true. But nevertheless, they publicly and stubbornly held on to a theology that denied the resurrection. And they stubbornly denied Jesus whose tomb is empty. It's irrational. And everyone is like that apart from Christ. Folks, we all do this. We all want to build our little kingdoms because there are things that the sinful heart wants more than God, whether that be approval or power or prestige or pleasures, or possessions, or comfort, or the so-called American dream. But here's what happened. The message of the gospel, the message of the gospel of the kingdom, comes along and shakes us up and says, it's not about you and your kingdom. 
It's not about your plans and your preferences and your agenda outside of God. You are not the center of the universe. Jesus Christ is the center of the universe. And to truly receive and experience life, your life must be in line with him, period. And in our sin, we don't want that. We see Jesus as a threat, as an invader that is threatening our little kingdom. And apart from the grace of God softening our hearts, we will fight and resist him tooth and nail to the death, to death. We'll fight. Even though all the evidence points to the reality of who God is and the veracity of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And so ultimately what a person needs is not intellectual arguments. And by the way, if you're here and you are not a believer this morning, I'm glad you're here. And if you have intellectual arguments, I'd be more than happy to talk with you about them. But ultimately what a person needs is not intellectual arguments, but a change of heart. And, And Christians, that change of heart only comes about through a miraculous work of God that comes about through the preaching of the Word of God because faith, real, genuine faith in Jesus comes by hearing and hearing not not any old word, not your powerful intellectual arguments, but hearing by the Word of Christ. That's how faith comes, which, which is why the apostles never changed their basic message throughout the book of Acts. Their constant drumbeat has been, Jesus is the Messiah, you killed him, God raised him, repent and receive his mercy. And and that's the message that that is causing thousands and thousands of, of people in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas to believe and now they're pouring into the church and that is what's making the Sadducees mad. And so persecution comes. Harder this time than in Acts chapter 4, as we'll see in a bit. It says the uh, apostles were thrown in the public jail. The Sadducees want to make a public statement about who is really in charge here. What they don't realize is indeed their actions will make a statement to everyone about who is in charge, but not in the way that they think. And that's made clear in the verses to follow. Verse 19, but during the night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. The brevity of the account of the jailbreak shows something of God's sovereign power, right? You think of jailbreaks, I don't know anything about jailbreaks, <laughs> thankfully, but I mean, I've seen movies where they've happened, and it seems like a really hard thing to do, to bust out of prison. It takes a lot of planning and organization, and, and everything has to happen just right, and it could backfire on you, but here it doesn't seem hard at all. <laughs> the, the angel just opens the doors and brings them out. And tells the disciples in verse 19, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. I I, I love how the gospel is described there. The words of life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. Jesus brings eternal life. People of Jerusalem were in a state of death. Dead in their sins. Dead in their bondage to dead religion with no true peace in their hearts, and God loves them and wants to save them. And so he opens up those prison doors and he tells the disciples, get right back out there and keep preaching the words of this life so that others might experience and enjoy this this new and resurrected life starting now and extending forever into the age to come. And so in the subsequent verses, at the break of day, there's a gathering of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the most powerful governing body of Israel, dominated by Sadducees, but there are some Pharisees there also. And they're about to drop the hammer on the disciples and they, they send the guards to go and, and, and get the disciples out of their, their cells. And, 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 and then verse 22 says that the officers come and, and, and they don't find them in prison. It's, it's just really funny because like the guards are there at their post and everything is all nice and secure and nobody knows anything. Uh, just nothing different has happened, but all of a sudden now <laughs> nobody's in the prison. And, and, and then as they're, as they're scratching their heads wondering what is going on, someone, someone comes up to, uh, to the tree, chief priest and says, oh yeah, those guys you're looking for, they're actually right back in the temple where they were the other day, preaching and teaching. I find this humorous. And, and I think we're to take it that way. You think about the anger and the rage of the Sadducees and and their fury at the disciples and their attempts to do whatever they can in their power to stop this. Remember, they are the most powerful Jewish authority in Israel. 
and their efforts are undone with ease in the middle of the night while they are sleeping by an angel. Remember, they don't believe in angels. This is hilarious. They're reduced to to, to bumbling keystone cops, the most powerful men in Israel. And the message here is that God cannot be stopped. God's message can't be thwarted. No human power, no satanic power can successfully resist God's goal to get the gospel of the kingdom out to the ends of the earth because man is not in charge, God is. Man's plans are not supreme, God's are. God will have his way and the success of this mission, this global takeover is guaranteed. But does that mean that God will always quickly and immediately deliver his servants from persecution? No. In fact, later on in this chapter, the apostles are arrested again and beaten. In a couple more chapters, we're going to see the first Christian martyr. In chapter 12, King Herod's going to rise up and kill one of the apostles. In fact, eventually, every one of these apostles who experienced this divine jailbreak will one day face a violent and horrific end. And after the apostles die, the persecution doesn't end. Indeed, it continues even to this day. So then which is it? Can we count on God to protect his people or not? That's a great question. I've got two responses to that. First, let's not forget what we see here in Acts 5. The authorities lock up the apostles. God immediately lets the apostles out. The message is that God can deliver his servants however he wants, whenever he wants, regardless of what anyone else wants, period. And that is a very comforting thought to to anyone who ever faces persecution. Essentially, what that means is that if God has something specific for you to do, no jail cell can hold you, no human or satanic power can stop you, and I would go even further and say that no weapon can kill you. Nobody can stop God's specific purposes for you from coming to fruition. I'm reminded of the the great Scottish missionary, John Patton. And by the way, if you don't know missionary stories of the past, and many Christians don't today, and that that is a lost treasure, you need to start reading up on some missionary biographies and reading about the sacrifice and the the blood that was spilt and, and, and what these great men and women of old went through for the gospel. It'll remind you that we are all wimpy modern Americans. John Patton, in 1858, along with his wife Mary, sailed to the New Hebrides Island to bring the gospel to a very dangerous, very violent, very cannibalistic people who had been known to murder and eat missionaries in the past. Patton went anyway, and he served there for 50 years. Very often he found himself close to death due to illness or violent attacks from the islanders. And there was one moment where he had a particularly harrowing brush with death as he was surrounded by hostile natives. And and Patton, writing back on this incident, he says, my peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized in that moment that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. Not a musket would be fired to wound us. Not a club prevailed to strike us. Not a spear would leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown. Not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, who has all power in heaven and earth, and he rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savage of the South Seas. I want you to think about that. You are immortal until the master's work with you is done. Maybe, just maybe, if more of us had that kind of attitude and belief in the overwhelming sovereignty of God in all things, that 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 would put more steel in our spines. Give us the courage to preach the gospel more in a hostile world. Maybe it would give more of us the courage to go overseas to the hardest places in the world, to reach the unreached peoples of the world, to places where they slit the throats of infidels. Maybe more comfortable American Christians would go because we love them and because we believe we're immortal until the master's work with us is done. Then what if death does come in our service to God? Does that mean we can only count on his protection until the very end? No. Jesus says in Luke 21, they will lay their hands on you 
and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will all be hated for my name's sake. So expect it. The world hates Jesus, hates the message, hates the messenger. So if you want to be popular, you pick the wrong religion. It's going to be hard. But then, but then, and and I love this. After telling them about all the tough things that are going to happen to them, even being put to death, Jesus then says, but not a hair of your head will perish. (laughs) Think about that. That's an amazing statement. You're going to be persecuted. It's going to be hard. Some of you are going to be murdered, but not a hair of your head will perish. That's insane, but true. What does it mean? It means that no matter what happens in this conflict between good and evil, God's people cannot be touched. Not ultimately. God will fully and finally protect his own. If you are murdered on the mission field, the scripture tells you that though absent from the body, you will be immediately present with the Lord in heaven. Even better, one day, even that body that was killed by the enemies of the gospel will one day be refashioned, remade, and resurrected, and better than before. You can't lose. To live is Christ. To die is gain. The believer will face fierce opposition, but will experience divine protection up to the point of death and then even through death. That's the the first tension that we see here in our text, opposition and protection. The next thing we see is man's authority countered by God's authority. Man's authority countered by God's authority. Verse 27 says the disciples were brought before the council. That's the Sanhedrin. And this, by the way, shows that the apostles are no longer seen as just a threat to the temple or to the religious authority. They're also seen as a threat to national security. So this whole thing now is escalating. This is like being brought not just before the Supreme Court, but also before the President and the Senate and the House. (laughs) The most powerful people and the most powerful authorities in Israel are here. Verse 27 The high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Well, his blood was already on them. If you are living as a Christian in a world opposed to Christ, there's often a tension that we run into where people will try to use their authority to try to undermine our commitment to God's authority. So that's happening here right now in Acts 5. I heard a stat the other day that <clears throat> one in 12 Christians live in a place where Christianity is forbidden or illegal or punished. But even here in America, there is growing opposition to Christianity. We're, we're seeing threats come to religious liberty. We're going to particularly see these threats coming at us in the area of the LGBTQ issues. We're going to see increasing pressure for us to be quiet because what we say is offensive to the ears of the dominant culture. There's increasing pressure to privatize our faith. You can be a Christian as long as you are are quiet about it, as long as you just keep it to yourself. Don't bring it into the workplace. Don't bring it into politics. Don't bring it into the public square. It's, it's too offensive. Stop talking about it. So the Sanhedrin is telling the apostles. They aren't saying, don't believe in Jesus. They're saying, stop proselytizing. Stop evangelizing. Keep it to yourselves. That's impossible. Because Christianity is not a private religion. If you're a Christian, your faith is meant to go public. Jesus lays claim publicly to the whole world. The brothers and sisters know that the more you speak out for Jesus, the more pressure you will face to shut up. To shut up. And here, in Acts 5, the most powerful governmental authority in Israel outside of the Romans is telling the apostles to shut up. This brings us to attention. We are commanded in Scripture to obey the governing authorities. 
They've been established by God. We're supposed to submit to them. We're even supposed to honor them, even if they're wrong. Uh, Peter himself later on will write, honor the emperor, this pagan, wicked, satanic ruler. Honor the emperor. But on the other hand, that same Peter who wrote that, here in Acts 5, he looks at the high priest and this council in the eye, and he says in verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. Yes, we are to submit to the governing authorities. Yes, we respect them. Yes, we pray for them. Yes, we submit to them. But in those times where the authority of the government comes into tension with the authority of God, we must obey God and not men. God's authority is supreme. And brothers and sisters, we need to be clear on this one. In the years to come, in this country, I think there's going to be more clashes between God's authority and man's authority than we've ever seen before. And if you are not clear on what the Bible says about this, you are going to be easily swept away into whatever ungodly moral revolution our country is pushing. And here in Acts 5, when the Sanhedrin bears down on the apostles for teaching about Jesus, I love how the apostles respond. They start teaching them about Jesus. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at at his right hand as leader and savior. I love those titles, leader and savior. He says, yes, you killed him. But in the wake of that, God has made him leader and savior. He's the leader, you're not. He's the savior, you're not. But notice that Peter and the apostles don't just preach condemnation. They say God has done all of this, verse 31, to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. And, verse 32, he gives the Holy Spirit to all who will obey him. In other words, to all who will listen, all who will turn to Jesus. So there's direct confrontation here. You killed him, you crucified him, but there's also at least a hint of an invitation here. Forgiveness of sins is available. The Holy Spirit is available. Jesus has died and has been raised for the forgiveness of all sins, even the sin of you nailing him to a tree. Well, there's only two ways to really respond to the gospel, joyful acceptance or hard-hearted rejection. And sadly, the Jewish leaders don't want to recognize Jesus as leader and savior. They want to be leader. They see themselves as as, as the, the saviors and guardians of Israel. And this illustrates something very profound about the gospel. <clears throat> that is that it is simultaneously easy and hard to be saved. <laughs> it's easy in the sense that salvation is a gift. You, you receive it by faith. It's hard in the sense that to receive that gift, you must release from your hands everything you are holding on to. Everything that you are counting on for life and peace and fulfillment and security and satisfaction, you must let those things go to receive the gifts. The Sadducees in their pride are too addicted to their lust for power and prestige and position to let go of those things. And so verse 33 says they were enraged and wanted to kill the apostles. And they would have, if not for the intervention of, of all people, a Pharisee, You're used to seeing Pharisees as the bad guys in the Bible. In in, in the book of Acts, the Sadducees end up being more of a problem. But you 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 have this Pharisee named Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the leading rabbinic scholar of his day, and and his most famous student is a young, zealous Pharisee named Saul, who we'll meet later on in the book of Acts. And here, Gamaliel is a voice of calm in the storm of rage that is exploding in the council. And essentially, his argument is, listen, we've seen other false messiahs rise before. We've seen them fall. We've seen these movements come and go. They fizzle out and die, and life moved on. If Christianity is fake, this too will fall by the wayside, so just leave them alone. On the other hand, if this is of God, there's nothing you can do to stop it. Worse, if you try to stop them, you will find yourself fighting and opposing God. Now, Gamaliel is not a believer, but he unwittingly speaks better than he knows. Because one of the major themes of the book of Acts is the unstoppable advance of the gospel in spite of the most fierce opposition precisely because God is in it. Indeed, there there is a, a sovereign irony in all of this as God in that moment is using Gamaliel 
a man of the Sanhedrin to preserve the lives of his servants so that they might continue to spread the gospel contrary to the wishes of the Sanhedrin. Because God's authority is greater even than man's. And it's working itself out here even in a way that Gamaliel and the Sanhedrin cannot see. So we have the tension between man's opposition and God's protection, between man's authority and God's. But then finally we see this other tension, extreme suffering, which gives way to overwhelming joy. Verse 39, so they took his advice. And that that doesn't mean that the apostles were let off the hook here. Text says that when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Now, this beating is not a light slap on the wrist. This was probably the infamous 40 lashes minus one. Law said you could do 40 lashes. They wanted to make sure that they didn't break the law, and so they just reduced it to 39. The whipping would have been on the back and on the chest with a three-stranded strap of calf hide. The beating was so severe that it could leave someone close to death, if not actually dead. It was horrific torture. I can only imagine the screams of agony let loose from these 12 men even after just the first strike was put on their body, let alone lash after lash after lash after lash after lash, front and back 39 times. And when they were untied, they probably collapsed to the floor, barely able to move for a time in a pool of their own blood. And when they recover and finally leave, How do the apostles respond? Probably unlike how some of us would respond. Verse 41, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Are you kidding me? This is one of the most amazing things in the entire chapter. I think this is more amazing than Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead. I think it's more amazing than signs and wonders. I think it's more amazing than the angelic jailbreak. They left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. In the Greek, this is an oxymoron. It means means they were honored to be dishonored. These beatings were meant to produce shame in the disciples. That was an honor-shame culture back then. This is a big deal. As as they walked down the street battered and bleeding to be seen by all, this was to be a shameful thing, and the authorities hoped that the shame would be ample deterrent for them to stop preaching. But it doesn't work. They're not ashamed. They rejoice. They regard the dishonor as the highest honor. Why? Because God is using them to present Jesus and put him on display and show something of the wonder and the value of Jesus. I I, I heard someone put it once this way that it is the highest honor to be identified with the highest leader. I heard a story once about a man who, uh, his whole job was to serve this one guy. He carried his bags, he organized his papers, he brought him lunch, he cleaned up after him. It was all very menial stuff. And yet the man was overjoyed to have this job because the man that he was serving was the president of the United States. Everything he was doing was done for a man that he loved and adored and respected. It was the highest honor to be identified with him. As those 12 apostles are staggering back onto the streets of Jerusalem with lacerated chests and backs, They, in spite of the pain, are rejoicing. They they feel the highest sense of honor because the stripes on their body are identifying them with their very, the very highest leader, the leader and king and emperor of the cosmos, the Lord Jesus Christ. The marks on their bodies become badges of honor so that they can truly obey the command of our Lord in Luke chapter 6 when he says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. And what's the reward? A new car? 
House on the beach? No. What's the, what's the greatest reward that anyone could possess? What's the greatest treasure in the universe? You have listened to my preaching long enough to know. It's Jesus Christ. It's Christ. The kingdom of heaven, I just preached on this when I was out in Montana, so it's fresh in my mind. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found, and in his joy he sells all that he has to acquire it. In other words, everything that you might lose in the process of obtaining Christ, and, and by the way, you might lose a lot. You might lose relationships. You might, you might lose safety and security. You might be persecuted. You might be thrown in jail and beaten by people who hate the gospel. The value of whatever you lose in the process of gaining Christ is worth nothing next to the exceeding value of Christ and his kingdom. And there's something about persecution and suffering that sharpens your focus on the value of what you really have in Jesus. There is no better witness to the value of Jesus than when you are willing to suffer for him and to even give up your life for him. Indeed, the, the Greek word for witness is the origins for our word martyr. So the disciples rejoice. But that's not all. Verse 42, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ, the Messiah, is Jesus. They're undeterred. They don't listen to the authorities. They continue to preach the gospel. And now more than ever, when they tell people about the value of Jesus over all things, it's not just words. They've got the scars on their bodies to back it up. So then what does this all mean for us this Easter? If you're here as an unbeliever, I hope you have seen that Jesus is indeed leader and savior that his kingdom will advance undeterred, undaunted. No human or spiritual force can halt its progress. His gospel is unstoppable. And so the question for you is, are you with him? Are you with him? Or will you go your life disregarding him? Will you fight against him in vain as the Sadducees did because he threatens your little kingdom? I would urge you, my friend, not to do that. Folks, everything that you will receive in Christ and in his kingdom is way better than whatever little piddly thing you're holding on to now. How tragic it would be if the words of Gamaliel applied to you, that after you lived your entire life thinking you were okay going your own way and doing your own thing, that at the end of it all, after you die, you discover to your horror that you have been fighting against God. The apostles said that Jesus was hung on a tree, and that's a loaded term in the Jewish world because the scriptures say cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. As he hung on the cross, Jesus was cursed not because of any sins he committed. Instead, the curse of sin was put upon him. He died as a substitute for sinners who deserve to die. He took the judgment for sin. It fell on him, even though it deserves to fall on all of us. He died as a substitute for sinners, which means that today if you repent, if you turn away from living your life and instead turn around to go God's way, if you receive Jesus as your leader and savior, then you won't have to endure the curse of sin yourself eternally in hell. And the resurrection of Jesus is the sure sign that God accepted Jesus' payment for sins. It's the sign that through him resurrection life can be given to you, giving you a new heart and a new spirit found in a relationship with God, along with the promise of future resurrection from the grave where you can enjoy the pleasures of God forevermore in the age to come when the kingdom of Christ is fully manifested here on earth. So stop fighting against Jesus and embrace him. If you are a believer, you need to remember you are not here for yourself. You're not here to carve out your comfortable little kingdom here on earth and just coast to heaven. You are on mission. You're to be on mission for Jesus. The divine sovereign protection of God is greater than the fiercest opposition of man against you. You will be opposed, but you should not fear. God's authority is superior to human authority every time. God will always get his way, so obey God rather than man. And when persecution comes, 
When insults come, when you're marginalized and mocked, when you lose friends, when you lose family because of your allegiance to Christ, you can rejoice that you have been counted worthy to suffer for the name. Let your dishonor be a badge of honor, that you belong to Jesus, and and the value of what you have in him is superior to anything else that you could have in this world. The apostle Peter once said to Jesus, Lord, we have given up everything for you. And Jesus said to them in Mark 10, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. (laughs) Don't forget that one. With persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Even if in the cause of Christ, you lose your very life. You can know that because of Jesus' resurrection, you too will rise. The gospel is unstoppable. Jesus' victory is at hand. His kingdom reign is coming. And this is why in 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul, after writing about the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, concludes his teaching by saying to you, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truths of Acts chapter 5. And I pray that you would help us who believe to really live them out. To move forward on mission for you. Not afraid of, of man, not afraid of rejection, but moving forward in the fear and in the love of God. And thank you that you will be with us always, even to the end of the age, as we live on mission. Father, I pray again for any who are in our midst that have not received you as leader. They have not received you as Savior. Father, would you break down their pride? Would you break down their pride and help them to see themselves as they really are, as a, as a sinner in need of judgment, who deserves judgment, and yet the judgment price for sinners has been paid in Christ. And so, Father, let anyone in this room who needs the mercy of God throw themselves at the mercy of God, trusting in Christ, trusting in his sacrifice, trusting him as leader and savior. Oh, what a wonderful day this would be, Easter day, that someone would receive Jesus as leader and savior. What a wonderful spiritual birthday it could be for somebody today. And I pray that that would happen. Thank you that Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. And because of that, we know that we who are in Christ will rise. In Jesus' name, amen.